You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff, and I'm joined by national security lawyers who are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. All right, thanks for tuning in. Here at NSLT, we've created a safe space for national security nerds like yourself and anyone else who wants to better understand national security. No doubt you, as an NSLT listener, have followed the China trade issues closely. Well, we're here tonight to discuss how, in a digital economy where everything's connected to everything else all across the globe, how we can manage threats posed by foreign-made products in the supply chain. Our guest tonight can talk about the history of American telecommunications technology and how we found ourselves dependent on Chinese-made smartphones, microchips, and other telecommunications interfaces. So our guest tonight is Jeff Ferry of the Coalition for Prosperous America, um, which um, by its own website is described as the nation's premier nonprofit organization working at the intersection of trade, jobs, tax, and economic growth. I would emphasize that they are a bipartisan coalition, neither party, um, but it's a coalition of farmers and ranchers, manufacturers, and labor groups working for a national strategy to eliminate the trade deficit, which, by the way, is sizable, if you haven't checked. Um, and they want to create good-paying jobs and deliver broadly shared prosperity to America. That is a noble and broad mandate, Jeff. We're glad that you could be here with us tonight. Thank you very much, Lisa. Yes, thank you for being here. And just for a little bit of background for our listeners, Jeff is the chief economist at the Coalition for a Prosperous America, which is, as we said, a bipartisan advocacy group and think tank focused on trade issues and U.S. economic growth. He has a degree in economics from Harvard and the London School of Economics. And after an early career as an economist and finance journalist, he joined the tech industry, worked in marketing roles for a number of networking companies, including Nortel and Infinera. And in 2016, he joined CPA to focus on strategies to rebuild the U.S. economy. So here we are today, and we're going to have to um, deal with Huawei technology, Jeff. Um, how the heck did we get here? Can you give us a little history on American tech innovation uh, and its manufacture and how we went from sort of being Silicon Valley pioneers spawned out of Bell Laboratories to the point where we're depending on things made all across the globe, many of which do not serve us well in the long term? Yes, you're absolutely right. It's an extraordinary story because today technology dominates life like never before and an enormous amount of that technology was invented here in the United States. But as you're saying, a very large portion of it was manufactured overseas. So, um, you know, it's well known that the technology revolution began with mainframe computers in the 1950s and 60s, and the personal computer surged to popularity in the 1980s, and then came the internet, and so on. And most of us remember the fantastic growth of the internet over the last 20 years. Um, so the other thing that happened at the same time was um, there was an internet boom in the late 1990s and companies invested billions of dollars in new technologies, everything from PetSmart to to the beginning of Netscape and all, you know, and browsers and search engines. Too early to the market they were, weren't they? Right. And I was actually at Nortel in this period um, when we were building um, 
networks for telecommunications in the internet worldwide and Nortel surged to become um, a $20 billion a year revenue company. We were the largest company on the Canadian stock market. In fact, at one point, Nortel's market capitalization exceeded the market capitalization of GM, Ford, and Chrysler combined. Wow. Which is uh, pretty insane for a Canadian company to be bigger than America's three largest car companies. Well, in on March 10th, 2000, it came to an end. Uh, the internet boom ran out of steam. Um, people saw the emperor was wearing no clothes, if you like. In other words, the uh, this quarterly doubling of the internet was suddenly revealed to be stopping. Actually, the company I was at, Nortel, played a key role in that because we were doing we were supposed to do ten billion dollars of optical business that year. And when we revealed that we were just shy of that number, that was part of the pressure that led to the stock market peaking on March tenth. And as the internet, as all the internet stocks collapsed the technology industry saw their stock prices plummeting and they said, oh my God, what do we do for our next trick to keep our stock prices up? And the answer everybody agreed on was, we will outsource all our manufacturing to Asia. What had happened, if you remember, in that time period was the NAFTA agreement had been signed earlier in 1994 and Mexico was just getting up to speed to where by 2000 you could begin outsourcing assembly of telecom products to Mexico. And much more important, China was about to be admitted to the World Trade Organization. It had made various promises that it would change its economy to a Western-style free market economy. And many of us um, in politics and in technology, we're gullible enough to believe that, or I'd say in technology, we probably didn't care too much about the fine print. What the CEOs of the tech companies noticed was, hey, I can shut down my U.S. manufacturing, and in our case, our Canadian manufacturing, where we're paying folks 20 and $30 an hour. We can move to China, pay people a dollar an hour. So en masse, the technology industry began moving production to Asia, not just China. Today, it's China, Taiwan, South Korea, Malaysia, Thailand, a whole slew of countries. But we basically outsourced all hardware production to Asia. And it was only later, I think, that we began to realize that this may not be the best thing for the future of the U.S. technology industry. Why don't I stop there? And you Why don't, let, let, me poke, let me just poke you with a question here, because I think um, much has been written on our sort of free market model. And one of the issues is what do CEOs owe shareholders in terms of the business? How did reducing the cost of production feed that responsibility, feed the shareholders? What, what plus was there? Or was this absolutely just a let's just make more money regardless of the shareholders? What factors, business factors, went into this? Oh, I think you're, you're absolutely right in talking about the model of shareholder value. And we talk a lot at our organization, CPA, about stakeholder value, which has become the, the phrase given to the way, to the values of senior management half a century ago. In the old days, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, management felt it had a responsibility to the entire community, to the workforce, to their suppliers, to manage a business so that you'd have slow, steady growth and share it out broadly. 
I think since the 1980s, we've seen a revolution, which people sometimes call shareholder value, where everything is about rewarding the shareholders in order to raise the stock price. And frankly, CEOs in tech companies and in other companies, and I know tech best, and this is very strong in tech, they are rewarded with very strong, very large bonus packages or stock option packages, which are linked to the price of the stock. And your average tech CEO doesn't want to be at a company for more than five years. So he, what he wants to do is, in, and ideally he'd like to leave in two or three years, having made himself into a star, doubled the stock price. He then leaves with an option package worth $20 million, and the headhunters are begging for his time to recruit him to the next company. And there are managers who successfully do this. They jump from company to company. They make lots of money. So, and, and, and that's considered a success in Silicon Valley. There are exceptions, of course. People who want to build a company for the long term and take care of the people and the workers in the community, but they're exceptions. The majority are very short-term oriented, I would say, in my opinion. And I worked in the tech industry for 15 years. I'm not an outsider. I was an insider involved in many, many, I mean, hundreds of management meetings where we discussed strategy. Now, getting back to your question about what happened in the years right after 2000, well, if you can cut your costs of production, you can boost the bottom line, you can get higher profits, and then the stock price goes up. Equally important, there's a kind of crowd mentality on Wall Street. And I think the mentality, you know, it's best... It does appear that way. It's like a lemming thing at times, but yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's... To the insiders, it's the way you make money on Wall Street is by seeing where the lemmings, if you like, are going and getting there first. So you're buying before they've all woken up to the trend and you're selling when everybody's realized the trend. So there is this herd instinct. So the way the herd instinct worked in the years after 2000 is this, if the smartest company is moving all of its production to Asia and paying, paying the new set of employees $1.50 an hour, why aren't you doing that? So every company follows. And that's what we're struggling with today because we need to get manufacturing back to the United States. We need to break that herd mentality and say, no, the right way to produce in the United States and to make the United States a richer country with broadly shared prosperity is not to follow like a lemming the other companies and stay in Asia where all, you're, you're really dooming yourself because the Chinese are going to take over these. They're going to replace all of these companies themselves anyway. Because, with their own products, with their right, own vision of that, with the theft of IP and anything else. And absolutely. then we not only will we not have manufacturing, but we won't even have the production and the technology we won't to have start the, with. Right. The R&D and the design and all the creation, that, that tends to go with the manufacturing. You have one country, the United States, which doesn't care where anything happens as long as the stockholders can make some money. And then you have a country, China, which is very focused on building all of the leading edge industries of the future within China, including the design, the innovation, and the manufacturing, and the marketing, and everything else. And they're right. beginning to succeed in more and more sectors. So we need to ask ourselves, where does the United States want to be in that kind of world? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but about a decade ago, and maybe more, Bill Clinton, of all people, actually wrote a book on the economy speaking about this very problem. And um, I remember being surprised. I read it for because it was short. It was 100 pages, I think, or less. So what I raise that only to say this is not a new conversation. Um, and I'm hoping that we've reached a point of near crisis where, um, you know, people are willing to go forward and perhaps have fewer cheap China-made goods 
um, and invest more. But do you see that? Do you see a change? Because I feel like yes. there's a cultural difference. I feel like there's the way Asians think, Sun Tzu, long term. Then there's the way Americans think, which is what can I get right now? You know, quarterly reports, um, annual shareholder meetings, you know, c- click you know, likes, clicks, and all of that Instant gratification. Yeah, but I think there is a shift. I think that fact is that Donald Trump has led this shift. You know, he took over in 2017, and a lot of people like him. A lot of people dislike him intensely. But it seems like what's happening is he said, China's taking advantage of us. They're eating our lunch, and I'm going to take some tough actions on China. And even the people who dislike Donald Trump are now saying, you know, he's right about China. The U.S. has to do something. And it feels like, to me, we are moving towards a new consensus, which is that we have to be very watchful towards China. We have to begin rebuilding our own industrial capacity. I mean, you know, only in the last couple of weeks, I've spoken to staff members of both Democratic and Republican congressmen who are working, and congresswomen, who are working hard on these issues and saying, you know, we need to do things to strengthen American manufacturing, we need to protect American technology, we need to think about how to have a 5G solution that is not dependent on China and not open to widespread spying. So I think, you know, Donald Trump's going to continue and, and press these issues, but I think even if he were to leave the scene, this would continue. I think we... This is a bipartisan. In other words, whoever comes in is going to spirit this along. It's not going to die because we have a different uh, president Uh, at this point. What what happened was in 1989, the Soviet Union collapsed. And everybody said, I mean, you you may not be old enough to remember. (laughs) I remember it vividly. In fact, I was in Berlin only a few weeks before the wall collapsed. And But America went into a period of self-congratulation unlike anything we've seen in, in decades. And what they said, you know, there was a book written, The End of History. Everybody was going to embrace American democracy. And I think America Yeah, felt, that kind of didn't happen. Well, well what, happened, <laughs> what happened was people like Bill Clinton said, we need to sign agreements like NAFTA because once we let the Mexicans see how wonderful it is in America, they're all going to become just like us. And they're all going to go to the shopping mall and spend thousands of dollars a year on consumer goods and it will be great for America. And the same thing with the agreements we signed with South Korea and, you know, the European Union welcomed all these Eastern European countries. And that was a period which is called globalization. Now, I, and, and Danny Roderick of Harvard calls it hyperglobalization. I personally believe that that was a huge mistake born of this pride and hubris that America thought if we open our markets to everybody, even people where people are paid a dollar an hour, we will suddenly see the rest of the world become just like us. It'll be one giant friends show worldwide. In fact, that didn't happen. Well, and uh, secondarily, don't you think they also took a look at the China market, size of India, and said, whoa, those customers, we're going to be filthy, stinking rich. I think that was, yes, you're absolutely right. On the corporate side, that was part of it. But now, you know, now it's 2019, it's 20 years after that period, and you look, and I think, you know, the voters are saying, you know, look, a lot of people did very badly out of this rush to globalization. We need to change the rules a little bit. Okay, and I mean, playing devil's advocate for a minute, changing the rules is one thing. I think um, what I find interesting about what you're doing, Jeff, is that we are in a digital economy, and I think that the old sort of brick-and-mortar model is never coming back, and we're going to have to manage this in a sort of gas-permeable 
um, global environment where everything is interconnected digitally, I don't see that just pushing back on the manufacturing is really going to get us there. It feels almost like we have to roll up the drawbridge, you know, reassess, um, and then sort of move forward. But I just don't know how Americans, given their habits and current behavior, I think part of the challenge you face, correct me if I'm wrong, but no matter what we do right now, if Americans have such a lust and appetite for cheap things, and lots of them, I just don't know how we're going to bring this to the kind of conclusion that benefits all of us in the long term, which is not a viewpoint that we have. So I'd welcome your thoughts. Well, I wouldn't use the term pull up the drawbridge. I mean, in that when I say globalization didn't work, I mean economic globalization. I mean, globalization of cuisine and of the arts and of travel and of the movies, that's all great and that should continue and people should continue to travel and move around and enjoy <laughs> different cultures. Don't get, what I'm talking about is supply chains, manufacturing, production, and design and development of products that, you know, the only people that we can turn to if our economy isn't working is our national government. I mean, we really can't expect the World Trade Organization or the United Nations to help us. I mean, you know, we can, we, the people of Bangladesh have got problems, and I think we should help the people of Bangladesh appropriately, but we need to focus on the U.S. economy. Now, you're right that Americans have, a, have an addiction to cheap consumer goods, but those things can be changed. I mean, we right now have an addiction to the most expensive health care in the world. But we don't like that. We have an addiction because we have a system set up that doesn't allow us to buy health care at a cheap price. We have to pay enormous insurance premiums, etc. The right government policies can change health care and they can change the economy. I mean, what you mentioned before is one of the policies to get away from shareholder value and reward senior managers on how well they do in terms of increasing the wages of their entire U.S. workforce. Instead of making their bonuses dependent only on the stock price, let's make them dependent on how many American workers they have and whether the pay of, of those workers is going up. Let's not let them sell that. That their Let's not let them sell their shares for 10 years after they get an option package. Those are some of the things we could do to change their mentality. Now, and specifically in terms of manufacturing I and like technology. I like that, though. That's an interesting proposed solution. Oh, um. thank you. <laughs> and in terms of manufacturing, because you wanted to talk about the telecom industry, where I have a lot of hands-on experience. Um, right now, as, as you know, we're dependent on Huawei. I mean, we, the world, are too dependent on a Chinese company, which has very close and intimate links with the Chinese Communist Party and is, is basically almost a vehicle. And some senators say it's a, it's a front of the Chinese Communist Party. I wouldn't go that far. It's a, it's a genuine technology company, but it is way too close to the government in China for us to ever allow them to manage our telecom networks and as many people in Congress say, if they're managing telecom networks as they are in Britain, France, Germany, Spain, and Italy, we have to be very worried about the amount of espionage that entitles them to, to do. So I think we need a we need There are European alternatives to Huawei, Ericsson and Nokia. We need an American alternative to Huawei. We need a company that can build networking systems that's an American company that we can feel confident is not under the thumb of any political operator. That's what I'd like to see the federal government and the networking industry working together towards. Ooh, just taking all that in for a second. <laughs> Sorry, I'm throwing a lot of stuff no, no, at you. Okay. You were just talking about some of the things that we need in America. 
what are the kinds of things that China or other countries like South Korea, other um, Asian countries that we referenced as taking on a lot of this tech, tech manufacturing, what do they do to support those industries and allow them to flourish in this way that the, the American industries are, are not? Right. They have, a very, they have a very different history. So, so I mean, each country is different. Um, you mentioned South Korea, which is a good example to talk about. South Korea took the view 30, 40 years ago that um, they did not want to remain a poor peasant farming country, and they were going to identify certain industries and use government investment to kickstart those industries, and they were going to pursue what we sometimes call is a fast follower strategy. So they were going to look at the U.S., see what industries look the most promising, and then follow in those industries. And they began with textiles and cotton, um, where actually they learned a lot from Britain because Britain had lots of textile mills which were becoming um, obsolete. And li the mills were little, literally, the equipment was literally packaged up and shipped to South Korea. This is back in the wow. 1960s. And the South Korean government funded all this, and it also protected the home market. So if you were Korean, you had to buy Korean textiles. Korean clothing, and um, you know, if you complained, you were you were ignored. I mean, as you, as you suggested, it wasn't about cheap consumer goods. It was about let's build domestic production because we'll all win in the end if we can build long up a strong vision, right long term, long -term vision. vision right. And they went from textiles to steel and shipbuilding. And from steel and shipbuilding to machinery and television sets, and then they arrived, and through television sets with Samsung and washing machines, they said, well, the real heart of this product and the real value and the real future is in microchips. So we want Samsung to be a microchip leader, and the government took policies to help Samsung get there. And today, the two largest microchip companies in the world jostling for the number one position are Intel in California, which invented a whole lot of technologies, and Samsung, which didn't invent that many technologies, but is a very well-run company making billions of dollars worth of microchips. So it's an you know it's not directly comparable to the United States because it's a very different starting point, but it's a situation that I think we need to look at and think about, and you know realize two things: one, we can learn things from them, and two, we will always be competing against countries where the government is investing to achieve a leadership position in important industries. Some countries, like South Korea, will think, well, they're basically decent democratic countries. And others, like China, will think, well, they basically are a rival with some nefarious aims. But in either case, we, the United States, have to think long term, how do we compete with these countries and what industries do we want to be in? And um, there was an economic advisor in the 1970s to President Nixon who's famous for saying, um, microchips or potato chips, what difference does it make? They're all chips. And I think we have to, and this is what I think is starting these days in these last couple of years, get away from that mentality. We don't want more people flipping burgers at minimum wage. We need people who are inventing and developing and building crucial technologies of the future. And it's not just very high tech. I mean, even somewhat low tech products, you know, everything on this table, this microphone and that sound mixer, probably made in Japan, probably using patents that were developed in America. People ought to be making that here because if they were making that instead of flipping burgers at McDonald's, they'd be making twice as much money. Yeah. Who was it that said that we they characterized a certain country and not name of it. It would be shameful to be a nation of waiters. 
Um, mm -hmm. Let me add one other thing here, however, which is to your point about Huawei um, and any Chinese company is that there is a law in China, the Chinese cyber law, which identifies certain companies or, or talks about critical infrastructure. If you meet their definition of critical infrastructure, which certainly telecommunications, uh, backbone equipment and large companies such as Huawei would be, then you have certain obligations to share data with uh, the Chinese government, which includes obviously uh, Chinese intelligence services and military. Um, and that is a frightening thought to me right now in the United States of America. Um, so that's something to consider. China obviously funds things. Korea, obviously, they fund things and they've made it part of the cultural mission, a sort of sense of national pride to approach things differently. What on earth is the solution in the United States where we don't do that kind of thing? We don't necessarily, we want everything to operate freely, um, even if it places us at a competitive disadvantage to these other companies. So you talked about the 10-year moratorium on selling stocks that could enhance the um, responsibility, if you will, of CEOs. What are some other solutions that the government uh, can take on in the interest long term, not just of the manufacturing, um, but our national security? But of na national industries, because national security and the private sector intersect in many ways, much more so than they did a century ago, because, you know, and it's largely because of microchips, because the same microchips that go into this microphone go into the fighter jet and, and let it let it find its target and let the missile hit the target. So, so it's, it's about whole industries. It's not about specific defense applications when you think about this. And I think that um, you say, what can America do? I think that, um, you know, although, you know, we are a free enterprise country, but people forget what an active role the government played in industrial growth in this country. I mean, com companies like Boeing are where they are because they were originally developing airplanes for the U.S. Army and the U.S. Air Force. And the Second World War played a huge role in accelerating this country's technological development. The same with radio and radar and all those technologies which were once advanced. And the space program in the 1960s was a way in which the U.S. government funneled billions of dollars to the private sector to develop technologies including computing, materials technologies, energy technologies, a whole range of things that translated into economic growth and successful private companies afterwards. I think we need to pursue a similar approach today. And, you know, one of the sectors that I'm very keen on is alternative energy, because I think, you know, solar and wind and other alternative energies are going to be very important over the next 50 years. Well, the Chinese apparently think so, right? Because they're socking huge identifiable percentages of, of, of their money. Absolutely. into alternative energy. They intend to dominate those industries. They blatantly stole the wind turbine software out of one of CPA's, CPA's members' um, software computer, and they use it to power Chinese windmills today without paying a penny to this company, which is sued, sued in China, sued in America. They've actually put the man who stole the technology into prison. He was an Austrian engineer who worked for their company. He stole the technology, got paid millions of dollars into a Swiss bank account and all the usual stuff. But that didn't solve the problem because the Chinese have that technology. So I think the U.S. government needs to say, we intend to be big in alternative energy for a whole number of reasons. Part of his national security, as you know, soldiers in the Mideast use yeah, solar cells on their wars, back. Yeah, far-flung wars. And also, you know, there, there was, a, I think, a credible argument that many of these battles are over. 
yeah. uh, fossil fuels and where they're located globally. Yeah, absolutely. So we need, and we need to transition from fossil fuels and coal to alternative energy. It's the right way to move people who work in the fossil fuel energy industry into these new industries. We need that technology. We need to take action to support that technology, but let the private sector do it. But we need to be firm and tough with China. What happened a decade ago when we supported Solyndra and China upped its level of subsidy and the solar panel price collapsed and the U.S. chickened out and pulled back. We should have at that point said to China, we're erecting large tariffs against Chinese solar panels. We're going to build this industry in this country and we're going to build the best solar panel industry in the world. Because remember, most of the electronics inside the solar cell were first invented and developed in the United States at places like Bell Labs. So we have that technological advantage. We just have to leverage it more aggressively and recognize that China is a serious competitor and take action. And, you know, I want to add that we see this happening. We see this opinion getting more popular in the Congress almost by the day. I mean, in the next few weeks. With both sides? With both sides. In the next few weeks, you're going to see the Small Business Administration come out with a package of proposals which will include billions of dollars to be invested or to be lent to private companies engaged in advanced manufacturing. And that will have bipartisan support. So this, you know, this is starting. Now that's that's small business. It shouldn't be just, it needs to grow bigger than that. It needs to be big business and small business. We need large multinationals working for the benefit of the American economy, the American worker, you know, and the American manager and everybody in America will benefit if we reorient our economy to focus more on industries of the future. And the government has to be the, the leader of the orchestra, the conductor, if you like. No direct financial involvement. It has to let the private sector manage it, but it has to provide the lead and set up the terms of the game so that everybody knows that success is defined by boosting American income, not by some amorphous um, standard of, that we've had in the past. Well, I, you know, I think we sincerely hope that you're right, because I think um, there are definitions of critical infrastructure in the United States, one of which includes the American economy. Uh, that's a legal definition, uh, too. And I don't think anyone being honest would say that our global primacy is going to be enhanced if we're, our economy fails. Absolutely. And so if we don't get a handle on this and very aggressively, now I would say as a cultural matter, I, I do wonder what your organization and others might be doing to help change minds of consumers, because I think it's great to get a few Congress people to sign on. I think habits, Americans change habits very slowly. Um, and to your point about alternative fuel um, and alternative sources of energy, I just, I don't know that I see it taking off in the manner in which I would like for it to do that. But I will say that I think we have good people in the United States if we can get some manufacturing here. I think if you had the guts and the courage to go down into a coal mine, there really isn't too much that you can't do. Um, Maybe you need a little reorienting, um, some re-education, but I think you should have greater confidence in your ability to uh, apply your skills in other areas. Um, Yeah. So I hope you're right. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you know, you're making a good point about the, the American culture and, you know, what we've seen in this country is, you know, we had a subprime mortgage boom and crisis in the early 2000s because the banks discovered a way to 
you know, create all these loans and persuade all sorts of people to buy houses who shouldn't have houses. And then that collapsed. And now we're having a student loan crisis because they're persuading all sorts of young kids to borrow too much money to go to college. So there is a financial I mean, I guess the point I should make is all these things can and should be regulated and just pointed in the right direction. Our financial regulation is way too lax and liberal. We let the banks keep pulling rabbits out of the hat, which we know are going to cause a boom and a crash creative, 10 years creative, later. Uh, lin- creative products. Creative accounting, yes. yes. I mean, very creative, you know, wire loans, all those sorts of things. So you do need to control those things, and you're right. You do need to change people's habits and mentalities. But you can't say, you can't just say to people, you know, stop spending so much. You need to give them jobs and you need to, you need to have a long, you know, what, what we hear from our manufacturing members is it's hard to get young kids, meaning people in their 20s, to come work for a manufacturing company because they don't, in, in, in the heartland, not here in D.C., but in the heartland, because they don't believe it's going to be there in three or five years because they've seen so much go out of business. right? That's right. not an unreasonable concern. So it's, you know, it's a case of what came first, the horse and the carriage. You, know, you can't tell people to go retrain for a different job, learn to use a computer-controlled machine tool when, when the companies that use those machine tools are going out of business. What I think has to come first is, is, like I said, the government has to make a commitment and say, we are here for the long term. We want solar energy. We want machine shops. We want to make the heartland thrive again. And, I, you know, and you've got to say, Trump winning in 2016 in the Midwest shocked a whole lot of people in both parties. I, well, I think it did. But I will say that, that it is true that he made some promises that, you know, he's had to go back on just this week. Um, and I would point out that there have been several GM plants, and he told people to stay, don't sell your house. And those things have gone under. You know, this hasn't been successful. Um, and so, you know, there's only so much I think any individual president is going to be able to do. I do think it has to be, um, this is just my opinion, I think it has to be across the board. I think every American has to take stewardship here of themselves and how they spend. Um, <laughs> um, so I hope you're right, but I do wonder what your organization is thinking about with respect to the broader picture. I know you got to start with the government, but you've also got um, good Americans that I think are being whipsawed by uh, public messages, and I think they're going to need some help and direction. Well, yeah, I mean, we're a political um, education advocacy <laughs> group. I mean, I agree with you that the cultural issues are, are very important, and um you know, we do need to change people, move Americans to thinking more about the long term. And you're right, our grandparents had a much more sort of sober, down-to-earth approach to life um, than people do today. And sometimes you wonder if social media is a net loss to society rather than a net gain because it excites and whips up passions into such a frenzy. It's a, it's a scary thing. Um, but that's really not, you know, I, you know, that's really not my, my it's beyond territory. beyond the reach here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know if we were living in England, I would say, well, that's the job of the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Queen to, to give a speech and talk. And, you know, when I, when I lived in England, the Prince of Wales used to give speeches like that and talk about what's really important in life and society. We unfortunately don't have enough people in America who stand up and, and talk in those terms. Too many people are you know, political all the time and, and just want to get into an argument. Okay, this has been very interesting. I suspect some of our listeners would quarrel vociferously with you um, characterizing Trump as the, the hero in this 
um, I think they would, would differ. So um, I'll just well, put that out there. I'm just letting you know. Um, and that, you know, we were, we were headed in that direction anyway. There was just, I do hear what you're saying, that people were in the Midwest and elsewhere suddenly rebelling, wanting to burn the house down should be a signal loud and clear to any politician um, that American manufacturing is going to have to be brought home one way or another. Uh, and I hope they'll understand that, and that it is, in our, you know, in our opinion, a matter of national security. So, all right, well, Jeff, this has been an interesting. This has been a very interesting conversation. Um, we appreciate you very much coming in tonight. We have links to the bio of our guests this evening and to several articles Jeff has authored on this topic in the notes to this cast. Jeff, thanks for joining us tonight, and we hope that you'll come back for further discussions and conversations in the future as the trade landscape changes. And next time, we'll bring somebody in who will present a very loud counterpoint and maybe have the two of you discuss it. You can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topic at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. Drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org or on Twitter at ABANatSec. We welcome your feedback. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast platform of choice. All right. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.